And so, Father, we pray the words. We pray the prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I will, we will be a living sanctuary for you. Through Christ Jesus, please answer that prayer. Amen. So here's the question. What kind of sex should we have in this sanctuary, in this temple? Heterosexual sex? Homosexual sex? No sex? I asked that question because Andrews University and the Theological Seminary this weekend are hosting a national conference entitled Marriage, Homosexuality, and the Church. So we have their permission to talk about sex. Obviously, David Letterman didn't need any permission at all. I'm talking about the David Letterman who a few days ago got himself into a heap of trouble sexually. Because he has been the most popular late-night host on American television, Letterman surely knew that he would own the headlines for days after that now-famous mea culpa confession. Live audience on The Late Show with David Letterman. Thanks to YouTube, I've had the chance to listen to the over-ten-minute monologue confession. I'm going to play right now for you, just a snippet. Seven minutes into his confession, this is what he said on national television. Now, of course, <clears throat> we get to what was it, what was all the creepy stuff <laughs> that he was going to put into the, the screenplay and, and the movie. And uh, the creepy stuff was that I have uh, had sex with women who work for me on this show. Now, my response to that is, yes, I have. <laughs> I have had sex with women who work on this show. And, and would it be embarrassing if it were made public? Perhaps it would. Perhaps it would. Especially for the women. Um. You can't believe it, can you? Human sexuality. It is an amazing reality. You can laugh over it. And I tell you what, every time I hear that clip and I hear the audience laughing, I just, I, it, to me, it is utterly inexplicable. He's just confessed. You can laugh over it like the audience with David Letterman. You can weep over it as I suppose Mrs. Letterman still is. And all the women working for David Letterman, whom he took one by one into that secret studio above the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City, took them there to have sex with them. You can laugh over it. You can cry over it. But you cannot escape it, can you? 
this roiling force within us that drives us, our sexuality. That's why you've got to take your hat off to the Holy Scriptures. Unabashed in plunging into this earthy, earthly human reality. Take our passage today. X-rated. Paul inserts this passage right into the middle of a letter to a band of brand new loyal Christ followers living in the licentious sex capital of Corinth. I tell you what, talking about pulling no punches, I'm going to apologize in advance for all the blushing you're going to do. Open your Bible with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You didn't bring a Bible, you're going to want to track this one. Grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's the New King James Version. It'll be page 770 in that Pew Bible. I'm in the New International Version this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One of the great, great human sexuality passages in all of Holy Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Pick it up in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know? Question. Don't you guys know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, hold on, do not be deceived. Don't let the culture pull the wool over your eyes. Don't be snookered by society. Don't be duped by politically correct thinking. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, now hit the pause button right there because the Greek word is pornos, from whence comes our word pornography. Four or five major translations render that fornication. Sex performed outside of marriage. All right? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Pause button again. That would be sex performed with someone who is not your spouse, you that are married. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes. Hit the pause button right there. Those are the young boys that service the pagan temples that dotted the landscape of Corinth. In fact, the Corinthians had a proverb. Paul quotes back to his readers that proverb a little later. I'm going to give it to you in advance. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Rob Bell in his book, Sex God, describes how the ancients would come up to the gates of those shrines and there would be the male prostitutes or sometimes female prostitutes and they would quote that proverb, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. I'm hungry for sex. Can I have some sex from you? How much will it cost me? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. The New American Standard simply says, nor homosexuals. The New Revised Standard renders it, nor sodomites. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Hallelujah, he's off of sex, finally. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know that? And then, in a stunning declaration, one line, verse 11, I'm going to let that one line hang on the screen all by itself. And that is what some of you were. Isn't that amazing? 
And that, Paul writes, is what some of you are. Essentially, here's what Paul is saying. I know. I know that some of you were sexually immoral. I know that some of you were idolaters. I know that some of you were adulterers. I know that some of you were male prostitutes. I know that some of you were homosexual offenders. I know that you were thieves. You were greedy. You were drunkards. You were slanderers, swindlers and slanderers, whatever you are. I knew you were that. Isn't it amazing? That is what some of you were. But something radical has happened to you. And what you were, you no longer are. That's the first bookend. Two bookends to this great sex passage. That's bookend number one. And I wish you'd scribble that down before we forget it. Grab your study guide right now, will you? Thank you, ushers, for making sure that everybody here gets a study guide. If you got in, three of you with one bulletin or four of you, you got to have your own. There's some great quotations coming up. You'll want this to brood over. Hold your hand up. we got friendly ushers up into the balcony. Those of you watching an overflow in the youth chapel, make sure that you get this study guide as well. And while you're getting the study guides here, I want to say to those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. This is a significant study. I hope you'll plunge into it with us. Go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. www.pmchurch.tv That's our website. You're looking for a series called The Temple. This is part seven in The Temple. By the way, if you haven't heard the first six parts, they're sitting at that website podcast at your pleasure, available to you 24-7. All right? But you're looking for the teaching Sex in the Temple. What's so gay about that? All right? Sex in the Temple. When you find that title, it'll say Study Guide right beside it. You click it, you'll have it. Let's fill it in. Bookend number one. There are only two bookends. Bookend number one. What is the teaching of bookend number one? Jot it down. Both bookends begin with the identical words. Don't you know? Here we go. Bookend number one. What you, don't you know? What you were, you no longer are. Jot that down, please. What you were, you no longer are because something very radical has happened to you. Hey, come on, Paul, tell us. What is it? What is it? He said, all right, I'll tell you. I will tell you. Let's read verse 11 again. And that is what some of you were. But, but, write it down. You were washed. Write it down. You were washed. Isn't it amazing that in this list of predominantly sexual sins, the very first word the Bible juxtaposes against it is washed. Washed. Come on. Those who have engaged in sexual sin know the desire to bathe away or shower away a numinous sense of impurity is a natural instinct even among the godless. Whether it is personal sex or forbidden consensual sex, the instinct to wash it away is strong. It's no accident that God puts the word wash right up beside that list of sexual sin. Everybody knows the story of David Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba. That's not David Letterman. That's David the king and Bathsheba. Hey, look, it's not a, is it a sin to walk on the roof? Of course not. Is it a sin to look over the edge of the roof? As long as you don't get too close. To look into your neighbor's yard? No problem at all. To happen to see your neighbor's wife bathing in the backyard? Still no sin. That was no more a sin for David than it was a sin for Joseph to be handsome, virile, and attractive to Mrs. Potiphar who bats her false eyelashes and tries to beckon the boy into bed. Was that a sin for Joseph? Are you kidding? Was it a sin for David? No. But it is the next response that is the tragic twist 
to separate the tail of those two young adults. The next response. Here's the difference between their two responses. Joseph. Joseph fled. David fed. And there is an universe of difference. Joseph fled the website. Gone. David fed at that website. Joseph fled the laptop. David stayed at the laptop. Ladies and gentlemen, all this talk about homosexuality this weekend, I'm going to tell you something. As a pastor, I happen to know that much greater than homosexual sin and heterosexual sin is pornographic sin, pornographic sex. It's what's enchained this generation. I know because you've come and told me. Joseph fled. David fed. And therein lies the difference. Two very different endings. And by the way, of course, you know the story. After David has impregnated his neighbor's wife, God sends prophet Nathan with the word, We know. The gig's up. And David breaks down, you remember, in that bitter remorse and repentance. And in his prayer to God, here's where we're going. In his prayer to God, David uses the very word Paul juxtaposes beside that list of sexual sin. Of course, David's writing in Hebrew and Paul's in Greek. But here here is David's prayer, Psalm 51, the great penitential psalm, verse 7. Cleanse me, O God. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Wash me. You've got to wash me. I need a shower. I need a bath. I need to be clean. Wash me now. Wash me. But you were washed. You used to be, but you were washed. Washed by what? It's not rocket science when you consider the New Testament record. In this series, The Temple, we've been going to God's temple His throne room in the universe. We're looking at what the Bible teaches is the final strategic chapter in salvation history, namely the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, up there in that temple being cleansed, down here in the temple, here also being cleansed. And one of the the passages we've returned to often is the Day of Atonement chapter in the New Testament. It's Hebrews 9. And we've read this before. I want to put it on the screen for you. Hebrews 9.14. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, how much more will His blood cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Would you write that down, please? What are we cleansed by? How does this washing take place? We are washed by His blood. And there's a string of New Testament confirmation behind that in your study guide. You're washed by His blood. We are washed by His blood. But not only that, this is amazing. Take a look at this. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. By the way, correct your your study guide so that it reads 16 instead of 6. That was my mistake. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on His name. Would you write that down? We're not only washed in His blood, we are washed by our baptism. If you've been baptized in Christ, there was a washing that washed your past away. If you have not been baptized yet, plan on it. That's how the washing will happen. You must be baptized for that washing. This is what you were, but you are no longer what you were, for you have been washed. What you were, you no longer are. Why? Because you have been washed. What's the next one? You have been washed, but you were washed. Sanctified. Would you write that in, please? The NIV leaves out 
the, the uh, conjunction but. But you were washed. And then says, well, we had enough of them. We'll leave them out. No, no. It's got to be there in the Greek. But you were washed. But juxtaposed to what you were before. But you were sanctified. Do you know what the Greek means for uh, sanctified? It literally reads, but you were holyized. You've been made holy. I was fascinated, intrigued with clinical psychologist and researcher Mark Yarhouse's observation. Thursday night, I tell you what, this has, been a, this has been an incredible conference. But in his keynote address Thursday evening, he observed at this marriage, homosexuality, and the church conference that Exodus International, which is a ministry targeted to lead young men and women from homosexuality to uh, uh, moral purity, Ex- he observed Exodus International's greatest strength appears to be its ability to lead its clients closer to Christ, whether there is orientation change or not. What you were, you no longer are. Because something happened to you when you came to Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You, you have become more and more like Jesus. Uh, you should have heard his testimony last night. This church was full on, the, on, the, on this level last evening. Robert Gagnon's lecture. Refer to that in a moment. But we had, a, we had a panel discussion that I had the privilege of leading. And I wish you could have heard his testimony. He also gave it yesterday afternoon. I'm talking about Wayne Blakely, who for 37 years lived the homosexual lifestyle and within the last six months has come back to Jesus Christ and has been rebaptized and joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So he was here. It's a beautiful testimony. Wayne said this in his testimony Friday afternoon with uh, Pastor Esther. The opposite, and I scribbled it down. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but holiness. Oh, he nailed it. But you were washed. This is what you were, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But, here comes the third one. But you were justified. Write that in, please. But you were justified. That's a term taken straight out of the courtroom. Paul says, hey guys, I want you to remember. Do you remember when you were arraigned before the divine judge, Almighty God, the Holy One, do you remember when you were in God's courtroom and they read that long list of charges that included all your guilty sexual sins? Do you remember that when you by faith embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... Remember how the divine judge brought the gavel down and it surprised you almost to death because when that gavel slammed down in that courtroom, rather than pronouncing guilty, he declared pardoned, acquitted of all charges, innocent, innocent, innocent. That's the meaning of the Greek word justified. The problem is, those of us that have hung around a Christian community for a while. We've heard that word unpacked theologically. We've heard that word unpacked theoretically. But it makes no sense to us because nobody can show me. They say, well, it's just this, it's this forensic event in heaven. I'll, I beg to differ with you. I'm going to show you right now. Let's take the same David. Not Letterman. David King. Notice what happens. Watch this. He dies. All right? He dies. After David dies... God is talking to another king. You can't believe this verse is in the Bible. You just can't believe it, but it's there. God is talking to another king. And listen to what he says about his friend David. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8. God's talking to this other king. And I put the numbers in there. God is saying, hey, hey, you have not been like my servant David, David, who, number one, kept my commandments. 
Oh, huh? time out, time out, time out. God, are you talking to me? Are you talking about King David? What is this? Alzheimer's is a divine affliction as well? Have you forgotten? What do you mean he kept your commandments? He broke the seventh commandment, then to cover it up, he broke the sixth commandment, killed her husband, then to cover that up, broke the eighth commandment, bore false witness. He broke all of the commandments by the time he was true. Don't you, t- you, you got another David surely in mind. Shh, God says, you're interrupting me. I'm talking about the king. You have not been like my servant David, who number one, kept my commands, and number two, followed me with all his heart. Away, time out. What are you saying? Followed you with all his heart? Rubbish. He gave his heart to a woman who wasn't even his wife. Another man's wife. Followed you with all his heart? Shh. I'm not finished yet. You have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only, write it in, doing only what is right in my eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe that? David is dead and gone. His book, his life book is shut. As it were, it has already gone to the judgment. Something about the divine memory and the divine record apparently is able to erase erase sexual sin from the record and declare that guy, that girl has only done right in her life with me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. You can't believe that the verse is in your Bible, but I rest my case. It's there. What's going on here? It's called the everlasting gospel. That's what's going on. It's what Paul is trying to describe to us. It's the good news. Listen to this, those of you that understand the Bible teaching that we are in the final strategic chapter of salvation history. It's the good news that you have nothing to fear from an end time judgment. If you put your life in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as if you have never sinned at all. I would call that a fairly cleansed record, wouldn't you? In fact, I love this. This is from the classic Steps to Christ. You have to fill it in. If you give yourself to Christ and accept Him as your Savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for His sake, you are accounted righteous. Now, hold on. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. Write it in. Just as if you had not sinned. By the way, that's what it means to be justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. As if you never, ever sinned. You once were, but what you were, you no longer are. Because you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. How's the verse go? Read it again, verse 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Bookend number one, what you were, you no longer are. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel truth. Let me read to you a few sentences from a letter I received from one of our graduates here at Andrews University. Dear Pastor Nelson, 
Last year, I graduated from Andrews University and moved to, and he names the graduate school for a professional school. A good friend of mine told me I needed to listen to one of your most recent sermons. I imagine as a pastor, you appreciate feedback from those who have listened. My heart is burdened. I am homosexual. But I have never had sex with another man because I am saving myself for the one I am to be monogamous with. Even in, and he names a city, which is one of the easiest places to find fake sex, I wait for just one. Why? Because to me, it is so much more important that I find someone who will love me on the logical, emotional, social, and spiritual levels before, all caps, before he loves me on a physical one. I have not had sex with another man because I value the establishment of a solid base before physical action. I do not put lust over love contrary to the stereotype, end quote. I'll tell you what, my heart goes out to the young adults in this university who are homosexual, who attend classes here, who worship in pews right here and who wonder to themselves if God and the church have any place for them. You know the danger of a conference like this that seeks to affirm the biblical teaching regarding homosexuality and marriage in the church is that the human struggle can be inadvertently sublimated to the theological correctness of biblical interpretation. And we forget. Until letters like this and conversations like this become a painful reminder of how deeply our humanity struggles to comprehend the will of God for our fractured lives in a society that is essentially godless and voiceless when it comes to sexual purity and morality. So here is this young adult pleading, pastor... What if I choose to save myself for a single monogamous homosexual relationship? Will this not count unto God as pure and right and moral? What are you going to say? What are you going to write back? Richard Hayes, the eminent New Testament ethicist from from Duke University, in his magnum opus, great book, Moral Vision for the New Testament, tells of his own struggle having a a gay friend named Gary who eventually dies of AIDS. Spends a lengthy chapter in the Moral Vision of the New Testament, a lengthy chapter, wrestling over the biblical witness regarding homosexuality. And then Hayes comes to this conclusion, and I'll put the words on the screen for you. Though only a few biblical texts speak of homoerotic activity, All that do mention, all that do mention it express unqualified disapproval. Thus, on this issue, there is no synthetic problem for New Testament ethics. In this respect, the issue of homosexuality differs significantly from matters such as slavery or the subordination of women, concerning which the Bible contains internal tensions and counterposed witnesses. But we do not find that, he writes, with the issue of homosexuality, the biblical witness against homosexual practice, and that's the key word, by the way, the biblical witness against homosexual practice is univocal. That means one voice. There are not scholars 
cannot gainsay that bright mind's observation. There are not multiple voices in Scripture. The Bible speaks univocally. One voice. So the question is not, what does God have against homosexuality? But rather, why is God so insistent on His sexual blueprint? Paul, before we get to the last book and just dives into that, you've got to see this. Your Bible's open to 1 Corinthians 6. Pick it up in verse 12. He's quoting some Proverbs he's heard from the Corinthians. Everything is permissible to be. Hey, look, he's talking about the third millennium. Anything goes. Man, it's okay. Talking about postmodern plurality. Everything is permissible for me. That's the proverb. Paul shoots back. Ha, but not everything is beneficial. No, everything is permissible, permissible for me. Paul shoots back. But I will not be mastered by anything. Now here comes that proverb, verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's the proverb. Ah, Paul says, listen, God will destroy them both. In other words, they're both temporal. The, now here's the punchline. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. Hold on. Paul, Paul outright rejects Platonic dualism. Good spirit, bad body. No way, Paul says. Are you kidding? It's good body. Made by God body. But let me tell you what the body's for. Jot this down. Your body was created by God solely for the purpose of relational pleasure. The body was made for the Lord, and the Lord, was made, the Lord is for the body. Relational pleasure. Listen, folks. Come on. We could have been created disembodied spirits. But God chose instead to make us bright, thinking, living bodies with minds that thrive on relationship. We just love relationship. What's that word? Relationship. By definition and by necessity is a focus outside of self and unto another. Isn't that right? has to be or you don't have a relationship. Sexual sin, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is sin simply because it turns the human appetite in on itself. And a life consumed by appetite, sexual or dietary, is a life that consumes itself, feeding off of itself, robbing itself of the simple pleasure and unbridled joy of a loving relationship with its Creator and with the neighbors around it. That's why. Sexual gratification. Wanton sexual gratification is thus making love to yourself. That's what it is. Whether you use a man or a woman, or yourself. Wanton sexual gratification is making love to yourself and thus is a sin against yourself, your body, and a bold rejection of the Creator who made you to enjoy this life in tandem with Him. The question is not, what does God have against homosexuality? But rather, why is God so insistent on His sexual blueprint? Hey, take a look at this. Verse 16. Paul goes on. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and now Paul quotes directly from Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But, Paul goes on, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. As Robert Gagnon raised last night, I mean, is, what is wrong with this picture? I mean, you have someone who is one spirit with Jesus, but you have that same person, one flesh with a prostitute. Is there something wrong here? Something isn't matching up. That's Paul's point. How can it be? How can you be one with Christ and one with her, one with Him? You can't. You'll be one with neither. You lose. 
And isn't that something? He quotes from Genesis, straight out of the creation account. What were those words in Genesis? Where God defines human marriage for all time as the union of a man and a woman. Quoting Genesis 2, For a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sexual expression between two human beings is defined by and confined to the marriage of a man and a woman. Only. Only. I.e., the high octane of our human sexuality by divine design is to be shared only within the protective confines of man-woman, husband and wife marriage. To suggest otherwise is to flagrantly reject the Creator's template for human happiness and replace it with a fallen substitute that both humanly and divinely cannot protect, cannot preserve our human family, nor satisfy our human longing. You, you won't be happy. You will not be fully fulfilled. As Robert Gagnon spoke last evening, idolatry and same-sex intercourse are a frontal assault on the work of the Creator in nature. In nature. And by the way, the moment that conclusion is established, and I'm telling you the truth, scholarship has not been able to gainsay that conclusion. It's univocal, and it stands like a rock. You can whack at it. You can't change it. But the moment we establish that, then the cry, the heart cry of this young adult in his letter, but wait a minute, but please, that's not fair. I am what I am. Shall I be punished for a lifetime because of my orientation? Here's the deal. I promise I will be monogamous in my homosexuality. I will be faithful to one man till I die. Admirable desire. Now, Richard, Richard Hayes, it's as if he got the letter himself and he writes a response. I'll put Hayes' words on the screen for you. The italics are his. Is it Christianly appropriate for Christians who experience themselves as having a homosexual orientation to continue to participate in same-sex erotic activity? No. No. The only one who was entitled to cast a stone instead charged the recipient of His mercy to go and sin no more. It is no more appropriate for homosexual Christians to persist in homosexual activity than it would be for heterosexual Christians to persist in fornication or adultery, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, heterosexual sinners, homosexual sinners, it does not matter. The gospel of God declares you can be delivered and set free in Christ, washed, holyized, declared pardon forever and ever. Amen. Heterosexual, homosexual. It does not matter. Hayes writes, and for me this is one of the clearest and most compassionate pieces of counsel I've read for homosexuals who encounter the biblical witness and discover there's no way. You can't change it. You can't, you can't retroact this. You can't rewrite it. It stands. But he writes very pa compassionately. Put the words on the screen for you. Despite, despite the smooth illusions perpetrated by mass culture in the United States. Sexual gratification is not a sacred right and celibacy is not a fate worse than death. Surely it is a matter of some interest for Christian ethics that both Jesus and Paul lived without sexual relationships. 
Guess what? It wasn't only Jesus and Paul. Jeremiah lived without a sexual relationship. Elijah, no sexual relationship. John the Baptist, no sexual relationship. Anna the prophetess, no sexual relationship. Jesus, no sexual relationship. Paul, no sexual relationship. It can be done. Heterosexually oriented persons, Hayes goes on, are also called to abstinence from sex unless they marry. The only difference, admittedly a salient one, in the case of homosexually oriented persons, is that they do not have the option of homosexual marriage. It just cannot be. So where does that leave them? It leaves them in precisely the same situation as a heterosexual who would like to marry but cannot find an appropriate partner. And there are many such. I have such friends. What position does that leave you in? Hayes concludes, summoned to a difficult, costly obedience while groaning for the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8, end quote. Let me read the ending of this letter. In conclusion, I understand that the church has severe struggles with this issue. I, however, plead, listen to his heart, I, however, plead that even greater care be taken to not push gay youth out of the church and inadvertently encourage a life of promiscuity. We need to hear that. Because if the church is not a place for gay youth or not so young, there's only one other place to go, and that's outside the church. He's saying, please, don't push us out. So what salvation is there for gay youth and straight youth, for homosexual sinners and heterosexual sinners? Paul concludes with the final book in Simple Appeal. Drop down to the end of this sexuality passage. Pick it up in verse 19. begins the same way as verse 9. Do you not know? There's the other book in. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Verse 20. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Book in one. Good news. What you were, you no longer are. Bookend number two, even better news, write it down. What you are now, you can forever be. Forever be what? Ah, what Paul has just announced. It is the stunning declaration shared by no other religion on earth. The Bible proclaims that the creator of, of humanity has to his own death purchased with crimson currency his earth children, body and mind, and has not only purchased us, but get this, he bought the house so that he could move into the house and live with us. And having moved into the house, he turns our human bodies into his sacred shrine. Hallelujah. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you know what? The mystery is not that God moves in. The mystery is that he even wanted to in the first place. That's the mystery. You know what that means? 
That means we must be, I tell you what, we have to be of infinite value to God. I mean, how can you explain this? You have an infinite God spilling His own blood to purchase us, an infinite God choosing a tabernacle and so finite a temple. It must mean we are of infinite value to Him. So what's that mean for sex? Piece of cake. Here's what it means. Sex belongs in the temple. Homosexual temple? Nope. Heterosexual temple? Nope. Holy temple. Sex belongs in the temple. Remember that. Remember that. Because that means all the sexuality that you are right now and all the sex you might practice in the future, all of it will take place in the physical presence of God Himself. Everything. Because it's His temple. He's sitting there. He's sitting there. Remember, you are the temple of God. Sex in the temple, the holy temple? But of course, that's precisely where God wants it. I mean, you think about it. After all, can you think of a safer place for sex to take place than in the temple? In the temple. I want to pray with you. Oh God, the mystery is not that you could come in. The mystery is that you would even want to. And yet here is the compelling proclamation. Our bodies, our sexuality, us, we are your sacred shrine. We are your temple. Oh God, please. What a high destiny. Call us to that destiny. Right now, I pray. And while every head is still bowed in prayer, I can't walk out of here without making an invitation. I want to make an invitation to the young men who are here. Heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter to me. I want to make an invitation to the young men who are here. Would you be willing today to reopen your temple to the occupancy of the God of this universe? Would you be willing to say, This is your house. My house is your house. Come in today and hold this temple, hold this house for me for the rest of my journey. Is there a young man here who would like to stand to his feet? He may be single, he may be married, he may be a dad. Is there a young man here who would like to stand to his feet and say, I give this body to you, O God, your temple, my body, your temple, my body, your temple. If there's a young man here who would like to pray that prayer, I want to invite you to stand to your feet right now. You're in the balcony at the back, you're in the sanctuary here, you're in the overflow room, you're watching on television. 
Just stand. And by standing you say, I am yours. I am yours. You say, Dwight, I, 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 come on, how, how could I stand? I mean, please. You don't know my story. The story is immaterial. You know something? That word washed, do you know what it means? It obviously means that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, my body is your temple, wash me now, it means you are endowed with spiritual virginity. It's all over. Whatever the past was is immaterial now. You get it. Young, male, the temple of God. Your past covered. Any other young men who would stand to your feet as I'm standing on mine and say, Oh, Jesus, I renew to you my desire. This is your temple. My body, your temple. I want to make an invitation to the young women who are here. How about you? Never mind the story past. Heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter. Would you too wish to stand to your feet and by standing declare, my body, your temple. You can have me forever and ever. Amen. My body, your temple. Spiritual virginity in being washed in Christ, I receive it. My body, your temple. My body, your temple. I'm proud of the young. This is the wave that God will send forth into this planet to reach the broken who surround us. Healed young men and women. I'm proud of you. But it needs to be all of us. If you're a not-so-young man, married, father, grandfather, not married, divorced, but you want to declare my body your temple, like these have declared it, would you stand to your feet if you're a man and say, Jesus, you can count me in. My body your temple. One with you. How about it, ladies? Society so much looks to the women to set the pace morally. If you're not a young woman, but you're a woman and you wish to say, single as you are, married as you are, divorced as you are, heterosexual, homosexual, what does it matter now? My body, your temple. And you're a woman, would you stand to your feet if you wish to say that? Pray that prayer as well. Greg, We've got to sing that song again. It's such, it's such a beautiful prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. It's a prayer to be the temple. We've just responded. But now let's sing that prayer. Greg, lead us, lead us through that. Please. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary.
that one more time, but I want to drop the decibels way down now, way down, and I want us to sing that just as a breezed prayer. Lord, prepare me. Let's sing it again. So, Holy Father, that is our prayer. Seal upon us now your benediction. Seal this offer, our body, your temple. Seal it, we pray. And now to him who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests for his glory. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen.